Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the World Football Index Copa Libertadores podcast. Uh, another exciting round of games, lots and lots to talk about. So we'll we'll get straight into it with the panel. A uh, big panel this evening. Uh, first up, as always, the stalwart who may stay awake for the, the the podcast tonight is Adam Brandon. Hi, how are you, Adam? All well? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Dave. Really looking forward to this podcast tonight. Even though I might not have too much to say myself, but it's been a week of big stories, reigning champions out, biggest club in Brazil out. Um, possibly one of the best performances we've seen from any side um, in this competition so far, in my opinion. So yeah, plenty to talk about. Indeed. And as always as well, and well, God knows where he is, somewhere in uh, Trumplandia, is Austin Miller, who's probably suffering cold and shit like that. How are you this evening, Adam? All, or Adam, Austin, all well? Yes, yes, doing well. I don't know about you, Dave, but did you notice the glee in Adam's voice when he said, biggest club in Brazil, out? It was like there was a little smile on his face. You could just tell that that was a storyline that certainly made him happy this week. Well, I, I was obviously smiling from ear to ear as he was saying it because I share his glee and joy, um, especially in this household over the last couple of days. It's been it's been a pleasure, actually. It really has. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that as we go. And really, are they the biggest club in Brazil as well? We might even discuss that. Uh, oh, next oh, up, I'd be the- careful with that one. I'd be careful <laughs> with that one. Well, it's chaos down here at the minute politically, and I'm sure they're all going to war, so why not let's inflame them some more? Um, next up in Medellin, Colombia, we have uh, Simon Edwards, as always. Simon, how are you this evening? Good, All good? Yeah, good, good, all good. That's it. Good. He's just good. <laughs> there you go. Just, just last, good? Good, yeah. <laughs> last but certainly not least, Xavi uh, Zavala uh, up in Toronto. Xavi, uh, how are you this evening? All good with you? I'm doing great. Like I'm welcoming the warm weather here in Toronto. Like, and we had a great Libertadores week. So uh, there's a lot to talk about, including referee decisions and stuff. So looking forward to it. And you've you've even gone to the you've even gone to the trouble of preparing a piece for us for Libertad against Sport Boys, which which is outstanding work. Like you know, your dedication is noted. Let's say, <laughs> like no one will ever be able to say that. I'm not a team player. I'm definitely a team player. He's, I think you took, he's definitely, you took one for the team, never mind a team player there. He's, he's definitely warming up on the touchline a lot harder than the other players. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, let, let's let's get straight into it, and, and I'll stick with you, Javi. Uh, we had Zulia against Nacional, which was a, a wondrous a 0-0 draw. Do you want to talk us through um, the non-action of this one? Well, that's just to begin with. That's a great description. The non-action. It was a, it was a pretty even game. Though Nacional had the clearest chance, especially like it was a header by Gonzalo Arismendi that ended up a few yards from goal. Now, what I was surprised is that Zulia started with a five-four-one lineup, which I was surprised by Farias deciding to do that, considering that he needed the points that game. Now, I'm going to guess that he thinks that he can beat Chapecoense in the last match. So he actually decided to play safe for that game. Now, the entertaining part of the game was on the last minute when Zulia actually scored a goal, a goal from a corner that was ruled out after a few shots and rebounds uh, because Cordero was in clear offside and scored a goal. Now, then Zambrano, player from Zulia, ran towards the linesman and blatantly pushed him. Like, it was, I was pretty determined to see, like, 
you actually saw, like, so you see a bunch of players running towards the referee to complain about the decision because even though it was a, it was clear unfair, like they are, it was night the 92nd minute, and th that meant the three points for them. Actually, Reni Vega, the, the goalkeeper for Zulia, was also in the box. So, like, they were pretty desperate. So, actually, that showed, like, how how much they wanted the goal, right? So, then the linesman called the offside, and Zambrano just run at him and pushes him. Like, it was it was funny, like, considering that I don't have any allegiance to any of the teams. So, like, it's unusual to see a player pushing a referee. So, that was that was funny. But, again, like, it was a, it was a pretty even game. Um, and, again, I'm just, I was just surprised how conservative Faria was in this I game. Actually I actually caught most of this one, and especially a first half. And I thought actually the first half was quite pleasing on the eye, the football at least. Both teams sort of knocked it around quite nicely, created a few chances. But yeah, I agree with Harry. Not too much happened in that second half until that late controversial moment with the with the goal disallowed, and it was Chilean officiating. But it was good officiating actually. Yeah, I'm not I'm not complaining about the ref. I think uh, again, like it was the right call. It was just pretty entertaining to see how a player ran towards the ref and pushed him. Like that, that doesn't happen every game <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, it does happen here in Chile quite a lot. Actually, come to think of it, <laughs> maybe it's something the, the officials say. Well, there we go. Uh, as I say, we'll come on to what, what that looks like and, and the impact on the group whenever we, we, we cover the next game. Uh, but we'll come in and, and stay with Javi again, who, who as I say, took a, took another one for the team in the, in the form of uh, Libertad and, and Sport Boys. This was a 1-1 draw, Javi. At least you got a couple of goals. Well, yeah, I won't complain about that. That was a nice change of pace. Now, interesting thing is that, so Libertad and Sport Boys, both of them started with the same lineup. Well, the same formation, I mean, a 4-4-1-1. Now, even though they had the same formation, they had a different strategy, right? Because, for example, Sport Boys played through the wings, especially on the left with Torri Torrico and Rivero, whereas Libertad focused on their play in the middle through Orue and Cañete. Now, I have to say this again, unfortunately, it was a very slow game with lots of passing in the back. Now, the first goal was by Libertad, a beautiful Cañete play. Now, Cañete plays a 1-2 in the middle, then, then plays a beautiful through ball to Barreiro, who crosses the ball, and then Rivero, who was a defender for Sport Boys, scored on his own end. It was very unfortunate because I think that Cañete play, the Cañete's play deserved proper ending, like a very nice finish, but still, the own goal counted for Libertad, so I'm guessing that they won't complain about that. Now, Sport Boys found a chance to to tie the game in the second half, in which Rojas crosses from the final third. Like it wasn't a very dangerous set piece. If you isolate the play, the set piece wasn't very dangerous by itself. But now he crosses from the final third towards the box. Then there's a flick. I cannot really I couldn't really determine who makes the flick, in which then ends up in Bogliori's feet who controls the game and controls the ball and finishes very efficiently. Actually, it was a very nice goal if you just see what Bogliotti did with the play. Now, there's also a little controversy here, no? Because, for example, the, the, controversy, the controversy is that in that actual foul in which the set piece in which Sport Boys were was able to tie, it was a very rough, I don't want to say violent, but very physical Nestor Jimenez tackle in which it was only a yellow card but it was more like an orange card than a yellow card, right? <laughs> like, nobody would have been surprised if he actually, the ref took out a red card. Well, 
Funny thing is that Nestor Jimenez, that same player at the end of the game, crossed in a counterattack, found a chance to cross the ball towards Valiente, who was in the box, but he was clearly offside. Now, Valiente jumps and tries to hit the, bo- the ball, and he was clearly out of reach, but I'm clearly offside. Now, once the ball passes Valiente and the defense clears the ball, uh, Orue gets the rebound and shoots from outside the box and actually scores, right? But the referee has al- had already called the offside. So it was pretty interesting to see that like, nobody complained. Like, it, it could have been a chance because you could argue that Valiente tried to to head the ball, but he was clearly, clearly, extremely clear out of reach. So, like, you could have argued that he wa- did not interfere in the game, in the play. But again, nobody argued, nobody complained, and the game ended as a tie. And in doing so, not 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 that there was anything to play for, really, for these two. It, it was just basically a question of who went to the Sudamericana, and uh, that's going to be Libertad. Um, the other two in this group, um, Atletico Mineiro uh, against Goidoy Cruz, ended up 4-1 to the home team in Mineiro. Austin, come on ahead and tell us all about uh, Mineiro, who who turned up this time. You know that we, we call them the Jackal and Hyde side. Tell us all about them. Yeah, this was as good as we've seen Mineiro in this competition. And it really wraps up a kind of 10 or 14 day stretch where, where I thought Gallo played really good football. Um, they won their state league final by beating their arch-rivals Cruzeiro, their fellow Belo Horizonte team, to win the Mineiro. Then they followed that up with a pretty well-fought-out 1-1 draw at the Medicana against Flamengo over the weekend to open up the Brazilian League. And then they went uh, on the road, in, or rather, they took on Godoy Cruz uh, at the Independencia in Belo Horizonte. And really from the get-go, we're in control of this match. Uh, Juan Casadas, the Ecuadorian midfielder, one of my favorite players in Brazil, one of the best number 10s in Brazil, came off the bench and made a difference against Flamengo at the weekend, earned a place in the starting lineup in this match because of that, and made an impact straight away. He scored within four minutes, scored again uh, at the 29th minute, and then applied the assist for Fregi's goal that made it 4-0 in the 49th minute. This was dominance from Atletico Mineiro. It really was. Casadas played really well. Fregi did what he kind of always does. Uh, Elias, the former Brazilian national team midfielder, uh, got a goal as well. Uh, Godoy Cruz got one back late, but by that point, it, it was really out of reach for them. They still advance from this group, but Atletico Mineiro do take the group winner spot. Uh, maybe not... I don't want to say not as important as in years past. It just comes with a different result this year as uh, the Libertadores has done away with their bracketed knockout stage. So teams won't be seeded based on group stage performance, but instead we'll have a draw to determine that bracket. So all eight group winners will go in one pot. All eight runners up will go in one pot and they'll draw those first matchups and then bracket the, the knockout stage through to the final. So Atletico Mineiro know that they'll be playing their second leg of the round of 16 at home. Um, from there, it's it's a coin toss at this point. But a really good performance from them. Again, the best that we've seen from them in this competition. I think they're trending upwards. You mentioned it. They have been an inconsistent side. It's been my criticism of them throughout this competition and throughout this year. Their inconsistency. But they've shown consistency over the last two weeks. They're, they're going to now have a long break before they, they take up again in this competition. So a chance to kind of put a run of form together domestically. Uh, and this could be a team to keep an eye on because if they start playing well domestically, they could carry that over into the knockout rounds of Libertadores and could make a really long run because the talent has always been there. 
if they start playing with the consistency necessary, you know, watch out for this side. Cazares especially. Uh, he's a player who's been in and out of the regular 11, which is kind of dumbfounding when you actually watch him play. Should absolutely be one of the first couple names on the team sheet every single night for Hajar Machado. I think he's finally gotten to that point. He just offers so much more than Romulo Otero does. Uh, his, his second goal was a free kick. If he takes free kicks as good or better than Otero does, then there's no, there's really no argument for Otero to start over Cazares. So I think he's a name to keep an eye on, one that I think you could see some European teams getting very interested in Juan Cazares uh, within the next you know 12 to 18 months around the 2018 World Cup, depending on what Ecuador do there and, and his search for playing time or need for playing time, I think. But he's a name to keep an eye on for sure. Very talented number 10. And what about Goidoy? Because they, they've sort of flattered the deceive in this competition as well, started poorly, then 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 a good turn of form. Was it a case of them just being outplayed uh, on the night, Austin, or, or did they yeah. show anything? Yeah, they, they were outplayed. They also made some changes. This wasn't their best choice 11. Uh, they knew that they were going through regardless of what happened in this match, and winning the group maybe wasn't that important to them. You know, there, there are benefits to playing your first leg at home. And that happens when you're the group runner-up. There are benefits to playing your second leg at home. I don't want to say that they weren't motivated to play here, but it was the type of performance that I think can be forgiven, given the type of form Gallo are on. Uh, I would look for them to show definitely a bit better once we get into the knockout stage. Well, as I say, they have a nice long break before that. So moving on to the next game, we, we had Independiente Medellin 1, Emelec 2. And I've pronounced Emelec on the first attempt at the first time. There you go. There's, there's a first for the podcast. We'll come to Simon first on this one. A disappointing night for Medellin, this one. Yeah, very disappointing. Uh, obviously, it was a, an interesting game. Um, I think uh, Medellin maybe set up... Well, I mean, Adam commented early that, that the Emelec team were getting a lot of joy down the wings. And I think that was definitely a factor. And I think it was something that Medellin didn't really necessarily prepare for. Um, at fullback, they had uh, Marlon Piedrita, who is a fullback naturally, but very offensive, much more effective going forward than defensively. And on the other side, they had Luis Arias, who is a forward, a winger, striker, who's been converted to a fullback. And he was really, really struggling uh, as a you know someone who's not comfortable at fullback traditionally, who's in his 30s now against the very, very pacey wingers of Emelec up against an Ecuadorian team you always need to think how you're going to counter that that pace and that power on the, on the wings which tends to be a something we find with Ecuadorian teams and Medellin weren't really set up for that the game itself was uh yeah very interesting very event-filled Emelec took the lead very very early uh Brazil Angulo broke into the box and, and scored a nice cross uh early on um Medellin scored uh equalized you know 10 minutes later or so 18 minutes, uh, Viola, Valentin Viola, volleyed in from the edge of the box, and a nice finish to make it 1-1. And then, yet again, MLX scored to put it 2-1 up, and and then we had the crazy free kick that was or wasn't a goal. I think it, you know, the ref, basically what happened is uh, there was a free kick, the referee was pushing the, the ball back, uh, you know, Medellin were getting set. Then a defender ran from deep, saw the, saw the opening, and hit the free kick from 35 yards, 40 yards, Straight into the goal, an excellent free kick. But the question was, some of the Medellin players seem to be an expert in the rules. And they said, ah, but you didn't blow the whistle. Because you'd booked the Medellin defender before you gave the free kick, you had to blow your whistle to restart the game. And the referee seems to agree with that. However, it's a well, quite chaotic scenes, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Medellin were throwing every possible complaint at the referee. And it looks like one of them stuck. And it kind of seemed that, okay, the referee's made a good decision 
But then upon looking at replays, as the Emelec player was running up to kick the ball, the referee definitely had the whistle in his mouth. So as, as, a, as a Medellin resident, I could say maybe he hadn't blown his whistle yet, but it definitely did look like if he had the whistle in his mouth for three seconds, probably he's blown it. <laughs> Who knows? It's very, very unlucky for Emelec. Um, and while Medellin played some good football and it did look quite dangerous for a long period of the game, and, and I think Emelec probably deserved to come away for this game with, with some of the points. Colombia, uh, Medellin had Leonardo Castro up front making lots and lots of good runs. When they changed him for uh, Caicedo, who's more of a traditional number nine, kind of a target man, uh, striker, they, they really lost a lot of that momentum. Caicedo is very effective, but his movement is nowhere near as good. So he can be good when you get the ball to him, but it's definitely much more difficult to find him than it is Leo Castro, who's always moving, always looking for space. So I think that took a bit of the momentum and a bit of the, the approach from Medellin. Um, Morugo was, was good in midfield. Didier Moreno, the, the midfield destroyer, kind of ruins it a little bit. They've got a lot of very talented players, and Moreno's an excellent ball winner, very athletic, very quick. But when Medellin are looking to pass the ball, he does kind of disrupt the momentum because he just isn't of that technical level. That said, I think Medellin played... Colombian football as it should be played, as Colombian teams should aspire to play. Lots of good passing, lots of good shapes. But on the end of the night, um, Emelec was just more effective over the 90 minutes. Interesting to hear uh, Javier's thoughts on the game. Yeah, well, we'll let Adam in in a minute to, to referee you this one, I think. Uh, Javi, you were a bit, I think you were a bit annoyed that the goal was disallowed. Um, certainly, I think on the night, Emelec were the better team and, and they deserved the win. But you weren't impressed at the goal being chalked off. At all. So, like, I would like to take this game step by step. Like, indeed, I agree with Simon. Emelec definitely take adva- took advantage of the wings. And with the offensive formation that Arias decided to set up Emelec with, Subeldia should have been ready for that, and he wasn't. Because, as you can see, for example, in the first goal, Mondaini was able to take on one defender who, who he had. instead, And there was nobody near him besides that first defender. So, actually, he, after he took him on, he was able to cross... And uh, like it's, it's fair, like Dean's defense totally fell asleep on Angulo, who actually broke in and scored. Now, that's the first goal. And in the second goal by Emelec as well, Guy Borg crosses the ball towards Bides. It was a beautiful cross, by the way. Bides controls and then he's stripped. And there's um, it was a failed clearance. I think that was by Mosquera, if I'm not mistaken, that Angulo just picked up the rebound and scored. So like those wings were a constant threat to Dean throughout the whole game. Now, in reg- in regards of Dean, for example, Dean de- did also some things very good because uh, the, the both defenses were very shaky and inefficient, right? So in MLX scenario, they left a lot of room between the defense and the midfield, which Dean was able to take advantage of. As you can see, they took 12 shots from outside the box. That means that they had the room to shoot from outside the box between the defenders and the midfield, right? And especially that, that goal was taking advantage of that space. That even though, like, I would have loved to have our, my defensive midfielder, Fernando Gaibor, to actually close out the player that was about to shoot. There was Valentin Viola, who had a, a very good game, in my opinion. Now, if we go to the controversial play, which I, I, I call it the controversial play of the year, season, decade, etc., I would definitely say, like, so the ref, before Pinillo actually shoots, the linesman is already in line with the last Dean defender, a standard procedure. The referee has the whistle in his mouth and is walking backwards from the ball before Pinillo shoots. 
also a standard procedure. And before he shoots, he has the whistle in his mouth. Now, you're going to tell me that maybe the referee is actually tasting the whistle? Hell no. Hell no. So, yes, I'm very annoyed. I'm, <laughs> I'm not pleased about the goal being called out. Like, at this point, it doesn't really matter because MLA got the three points. But that was completely unfair. And after what happened the first match versus Melgar, it's not nice to actually be ha- having to consider that you'll have a ref, a call by the ref being against you unfairly. No, uh, also, I'm, totally, I'm totally with you, Javier. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and uh, Simon, uh, before I before I go on my little piece, what, what are you going to say, Simon? No, I was going to say as well. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not too. I'm not blinded by this. You know, I know it's very unfortunate. And also, seven minutes injury time was was crazy. <laughs> there were some games this week that could have had seven minutes injury time and had two or three. Uh, I think last night was one of them. Um, but seven minutes injury time and a blatant penalty that wasn't given. Exactly. I think definitely uh, yes. the home team advantage definitely played into some of the referees' decisions. I, I completely agree. And in terms of the free kick, again, for me, it makes no sense why he disallowed it, which is the only reason why I can assume... <laughs> that he'd done something irregular because otherwise, you know, what could what could be the case? But again, very unfortunate for Emelec, deserved the win. Some nice moments from Medellin, but yeah, Medellin were very lucky to be in the game to the end of it. I just want to hop in here quickly and say that I had a lot of fun on Tuesday night trading screenshots of a whistle maybe being blown in, in our little group chat uh, about this match. So it certainly divided us. Alan got quite pedantic about it, didn't he? <laughs> trying to figure out exactly what happened. There were screenshots of the rule book exchanged. Uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So we, we broke che- it down as cheek, much as possible. His, <laughs> his cheeks weren't inflamed, so he wasn't blowing. <laughs> Maybe, was, he, was he breathing in or was he breathing out? <laughs> We got as we, we got as deep as we could into this to, to try and bring the truth to you, our listeners. <laughs> Adam should have to get those screenshots in. It's uh, all very important to see what the true decision was. Anyway, Emelec put in one of the best performances so far in the Copa Libertadores for me of of any side that is, as I mentioned um, in the intro to this pod. For me, they exploited the weaknesses of Medellin perfectly. It was criminal. That dim left so much space down the ring, down the wing. Imagine leaving so much space like that on the wings against an Ecuadorian team. I can't believe that they've done it. But yeah, it was just a really, really enjoyable game. A game that had goals, attacking football. And as Simon and Javier have already mentioned, you know, one of the most controversial disallowed goals I think you're ever you're ever likely to see. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Superb performance from. Uh, Emelec striker Angulo especially who who got a brace in this one and led the line brilliantly all night I thought I, I thought his all-round play was superb and was... Javi, what, what, one last thing you know obviously Emelec and I play um, Elgar I believe and you know you must be looking at this thinking you know you're, you're going to go through here Medellin have to go to uh, go to River Plate and that's not going to be easy for them they're, they're in a great spot here <sighs> Yes, like, but the problem is that I was as as confident as confident as I should be now. I was in the first match against Melgar, and you know how that went because that's the thing with Arias. You never know what you're gonna get, right? Because sometimes he experiments for no reason, sometimes he gambles for no reason, and sometimes actually his gambles pay pay off, right? Actually, against Dean, 
I strongly suggested that Emelec should actually play with three center midfielders to actually being able to control control Deem's midfield, which is, in my opinion, their biggest strength. Arias did what he wanted and played a very offensive style of play in which he actually included Angulo up front. So, yes, in theory, I'm, I'm confident. I think that we're definitely in. Melgar um, is already out. Deem has to go and get a result versus River. And even though River played my actually played B team or its backup team, that's still a very good team. So, um, so yeah, uh, I've, I feel pretty good about MLX chances, but I'm definitely not confident. I'm not cocky. We have to get the result. Actually, go and freaking get it. A Peruvian side at home in your last game needing a win. You pretty, you, it can't get better. It, it doesn't get any better, but again, I was confident against Fulgar in the first game. Emmanuel Herrera has every reason to want to score a lot of goals against us. I'm not being cocky this time. Let we need a, we need the points. Let's go get them. Period. And Simon, quickly, your your thoughts on on uh, uh, Dim going to River? Uh, not not hopeful. No, nah, not hopeful. But again, River are already qualified. We've seen quite a lot of teams resting players once they're secured their their qualification. Uh, it's going to be one of the. It looks like it might be the last Libertadores game for. Juan Fernando Quintero until he's back on a decline in his 30s, probably. Maybe 10 years' time till we see him again. So I'm sure he's going to be keen to make an impression. So, you know, I think they could do something maybe in Argentina against a team that's not going to be necessarily motivated. So, you know, I hope they keep the pressure on and hope they force Emelec to get a result in their final game. Well, listen, we'll move on to the next one, which saw Santos take a point in La Paz uh, with 10 men, it may be added. And uh, Adam, I think you the word you were used was disgusted by this game. So I'll come to you first before Austin goes far away. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Austin go through the story of a game in a minute. But I thought um, Santos's gamen, gamesmanship in this game was absolutely appalling. You know, you expect you, you. It's fair to expect some of it in the in a in the Libertadores, especially. But they, they went to La Paz and they got a point. They scored late. It's not even that they scored her. I, you know, there's a lot of credit there. Yeah, but even even that picture in the dressing room after the match wound me up. I don't know what it is about this Santos team. I just can't. I just can't get behind them in any way. I, I found them abhorrent on the night, to be honest. Like Lucas Lima, for example, who set up the equaliser. He should have been sent off. He shouldn't have even been on the pitch. That was a disgraceful stamp in the first half, which. He, I think he only received a yellow card for it because the ref had already sent off a Santos player before that. And I, and I think he bottled reducing the Brazilian side to nine men. That's the only reason I can think why he kept him on the pitch. And if, if Santos had gone down to nine men, you know, uh, I, I can't see that they would have got back into this game at all. You know, it's just going to be such a shame if we lose an entertaining side like the strongest in this competition. Um, oh, they don't have it, them it just, to blame. Adam, yeah, they missed a penalty. Well, you know, and, and well, blame's got in the penalty spot. There was nothing wrong with it. I was about to, I was about to come on to that, Dave. I, I just feel that it's a real shame if we lost Chumacero, especially in the group stages, because he's having the tournament of his life. So it would have been interesting to see how he goes on. But you know, having said all that, you know, like you say, Dave, their finishing was awful. And as long-term listeners know, you know, I have no sympathy whatsoever for poorly taken penalties. And it was a terrible night for Pablo Escobar around. Uh, I thought he had an awful game. Thinking on it a bit more, maybe, 
Maybe it was the actor that plays Pablo in Narcos. Uh, he's Brazilian, isn't he? Santos Pablo. Wagner Mora? <laughs> <laughs> Does he support Santos? Maybe it was an imposter. I didn't recognize Bad that Pablo. penalties for a lottery. No, no. <laughs> no, as I say, I, 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 look, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that you. Phrase, that phrase strongest. is like tonight to me. So, no, <laughs> no, I'm on board. I don't want to see the strongest go anywhere. But as you rightly said, they were so wasteful. And, you, you know, when, when Escobar missed a penalty, he seemed to try and blame it on, on a divot in the ground, which, you know, all the replays showed there's clearly nothing wrong with the penalty spot. Austin, far away. Yeah, so Adam brings up the point that Santos could have been down to nine. You could probably make the argument that they could have been down to eight at a point in this match. Uh, the initial red card went to Bruno Hiki. He picked up an early yellow for descent uh, after the Colombian Vladimir Hernandez uh, Went diving in the box looking for a penalty. Bruno and Hiki came to his defense, went straight at the Argentinian ref, argued, got a yellow, uh, and then committed a pretty harsh foul for his second yellow 23 minutes in. He saw red, deservedly so. The incident with Lucas Lima, uh, where he got a yellow card uh, that could have been a red card. Even before that, uh, on the first goal for the strongest, Chumacero, who you know we've, we've sang his praises enough on this podcast. He's a phenomenal player. This was a really well-taken yeah. goal. Poised, patient, delayed, waited for Vanderlei, the Santos keeper, to make a decision. Kind of got him on his back foot, then rounded him in a sense, and then finished. Lucas Verissimo, the Santos center back, was on the line defending. And in his effort to keep the ball clear, absolutely got a hand to it. But it deflected off his hand and into the net. So that's a situation where, you know, that goes a different way. That's a straight red and a penalty for the strongest. And so Santos would be down to nine at that point. I actually thought they were a bit fortunate that that goal went in without the controversy of a red card because, you know, a penalty one nil and then nine men down for Santos would have been absolutely difficult to come back from. Interesting tactical decision from Dorival Jr., the Santos manager, who came into this match and elected not to start his target number nine, Ricardo Oliveira. Uh, Ricardo Oliveira actually did not feature in this match. He was left on the bench. Vladimir Hernandez, uh, the diminutive Colombian, got the start in a false nine role for Santos, with Lucas Lima playing right behind him in the traditional number 10, and then Vitor Bueno and Bruno Hiki on the wings. They attack this as most teams do when you come to La Paz. You sit back, you use some pace on the counterattack, and hope that you can make one, one pop, and they did that. Santos really didn't create a ton of opportunities. Uh, Vaca, the, the strongest goalkeeper, wasn't called into question too much in this match. Uh, but it was a moment of brilliance for Lucas Lima that, that stole this for Santos. And he's a player that, that I really enjoy. Uh, I echo Adam's sentiments that this Santos team can, be, can definitely get on my nerves as well for some of their antics. Uh, but regardless of that, Lucas Lima is a number 10 in every sense of the word can thread some absolutely beautiful balls, and did just that on the goal for Santos. Found Vitor Bueno, who was able to finish past Vaca, got this match to 1-1, and then the strongest, as we said, had a penalty in the 85th minute. And Pablo Escobar just didn't put it on target. Looked like he tried to chip and go straight down the middle, and he just put too much on it and went over the crossbar. You absolutely can't do that on a penalty in that situation, uh, and it leaves the strongest w- with a big question mark. As they go into the, to the finishing stages of this group number two, they are in second place as it stands on eight points. Santos have, on nine points have secured qualification 
All they have to do is win at home against the Peruvian side, Sporting Cristal, who really have been dreadful for the most part in this competition, and they'll secure first place. The strongest, again, they're on eight points, which is one ahead of Santa Fe, who we'll get to in a minute with Simon, but they have to go away. Bolivian teams aren't very good at doing that, and they have to play a Santa Fe side that are difficult to break down. And the strongest, they only need a point from that match, but I think they're going to be put under pressure, and at this point, it kind of seems 50-50 for them to get out of this group. And it would really be a shame, as Adam said, and as you said, Dave, to lose the strongest at this point of the competition, especially in favor of a team like Santa Fe, uh, who, as we well know, are not exactly the most entertaining teams in this competition. But the strongest really only have themselves to blame. There were opportunities in this match. They created chances. But other than Chumacero's goal, their finishing was poor. And that's why Santos were able to sneak out a point in La Paz. And that's always a good result. Maybe an undeserved point for Santos, but they're able to grind it out, and the strongest just have to be kicking themselves about the chances they wasted. A quick one, because no. I want to just point out that Chumacero's goal was very similar to a couple of goals Wes Houlihan scored for Norwich. So I want to just start the campaign here to call Chumacero the Wes Houlihan of the Andes. Are we all agreed on that? How much rum have you drank? seriously (laughs) right moving swiftly along and leaving Adam behind (laughs) Simon a match that you described in the first half I think you know I think you were you were ready to gouge your eyeballs out with uh, a rusty blade Uh, but it it ended up being quite entertaining your emotions sort of changed you were were talking about giving it up at halftime and and I think you were actually glad that you stayed on with it Uh, Santa Fe winning 2-0 away to Sporting Cristal tell us about this one yeah, no. So, I mean, definitely the second half opened up a little bit. It was very end-to-end in the second half. So, uh, Johan Aranjo, who scored a few really nice goals in this tournament. Uh, he scored one uh, a couple of games ago uh, in Bogota, which was really, really nice against Santos. He's been playing really well. He's he's kind of a... He has moments. Sometimes he's not always on, on his game, but he definitely has moments. He has some great technique, some great skill, some pace and power. He's an interesting player when he's when he's on his game. And he opened the scoring with a perfect free kick to the left-hand side of the to the box, just outside of the box. And a decent distance out. Curled it perfectly top corner, with a nice bit of power. Completely unstoppable to give Santos the lead. And the way the game was going, you know, Santos was the away team. Sporting Cristal uh, looked to be struggling to break down Santa Fe a little bit. Uh, so it looked like it may just be, you know, 1-0 Santa Fe. Game is done and dusted. Santa Fe going to kind of bully the, the less physical Peruvian side and keep it tight. But in the second half, Sporting Cristal really pressed for the win and, and Santa Fe uh, really pressed to, to, to double their lead. It, it was very end-to-end in the second half. Um, and Santa Fe were able to score in the 92nd minute. Uh, and you can see from the, the celebrations and the joy on the bench how, how open the game was at that point and how important that final goal was right at the end to, to finish things off. Anderson Blada um, went for on goal and you know it was a bit of lapse defending by Cristal who'd been really pushing for the equaliser. So it was a good game. Um, Santa Fe, as we know, are, are very physical and very, very quick, very powerful. Uh, have some good individual players, but sometimes don't connect and sometimes don't build the players as well as some of the other teams in the tournament. Um, so they were quite direct, and obviously once they got the goal, it meant Cristal had to really push on. Cristal showed some good, good moments of you know passing and technical ability, some good creation. So that was kind of the story of the second half. It was the the passing, the moving, movement, uh, some of the you know the more intelligent, subtle play of Cristal against the powerful, pacey Santa Fe on the break. So it 
did did break down to an interesting game, um, and it went straight to the last couple of minutes, end to end stuff. And in the end, it was Santa Fe who scored that important second goal in the game, and uh, they'll be very happy with two nil two nil win away from home. Uh, like I say, Santa Fe didn't really shut them out in the second half. They just threw as much at San- uh, Cristal as they did at Santa Fe, and in the end, it became a, an exciting, interesting game with two different styles, both throwing everything at the game to get that second goal. And, and really, they do have a real chance of qualification now, of progressing in this tournament, Simon. What, what's your feelings? You know, we, we sometimes sort of make a bit of a joke about Santa Fe, but they're, they're there, they have the points, and, and they have the opportunity to progress. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at home against the strongest, traditionally, historically, you would think that that's uh, a good place to be in terms of the final game. Beat the strongest at home, qualify, sounds good. Obviously, the strongest have shown that they're uh, they're much much more than they were, you know, a few years ago. They're a team that can play away from home that has quality. Pablo Escobar probably won't play that badly ever again in the remainder of his career. So on another day, they're going to be a dangerous side. Um, but I think Santa Fe will be confident that they can use the the pay power and the organisation that they have to hopefully get that win for them uh, in the final game. You know, they do have some players. Jonathan Gomez has got good technical ability. As I mentioned, Johan Arango has some moments where he looks incredible. looks like a world beater. You know, he's tall. He's got this... Some He's got a great shot where he opens his body up and curls one. So he can look world-class in <laughs> Johan Arango, but he can also look a bit terrible at times. So they definitely have some players who can really have moments. I think so far their qualifying campaign has been all about moments. You know, yeah, any occasional spectacular shot or... Uh, or an impressive run where they beat one or two players. They've still got Omar Perez to come off the bench, you know, from time to time, who's a more creative kind of classic number 10, who gives them a bit of balance and a bit of poise in the middle. So Santa Fe is a team that will be difficult to play against for any team in this tournament. Um, They have their moments, as I said. They're fairly organised, usually. Not so much this game. It was quite open. So I I think they'll be confident of getting that home win um, to finish off this this group stage and maybe knock out one of our favourites, the strongest. Indeed. And, and so moving across to the next game with Austin, uh, Lanus losing w- uh, 1-2 to at home to Chapecoense. And massive result for Chapecoense on this one, uh, Austin. And, you know, th- they've given themselves, again, a chance of getting out of this group. And, and there's a couple of times during this uh, tournament that we thought it was maybe a bit beyond them. But they're back in it and they actually do have a chance. A massive three points in Argentina for them. It was, and they have given themselves a chance, but that chance may not last as long as they would like. It was a massive, massive away win indeed for Chapecoense, but it did not come without controversy. And the controversy kind of ties in perfectly with the match itself. So Chapecoense scored early. Wellington Paulista, their striker, his first goal in the Libertadores. It's a really well-taken far-post glancing header to put them 1-0 up. Uh, Lanus equalized on a penalty in the 80th minute. But then Luis Otavio uh, scored in the 88th minute for Chapecoense to get, as you said, a massive three points for them. Puts them right in the middle of this group. But it appears as though Luis Otavio probably shouldn't have been playing. They scored on a long throw. Uh, Rory DeLapp would have been proud. It, literally, the throw and went straight to the head of Luis Otavio and he finished at home, which was impressive enough. But in Chapecoense's last Libertadores match, a, a 3-0 loss to Nacional, Luis Otavio was sent off in the 54th minute. He received a straight red card. Chapecoense were under the impression that that was only going to be a one-match ban. Conmebol apparently had ruled that Luis Otavio would receive a three-match ban. 
So Luis Otavio sat out the second leg of the Hecopa Sulamericana against Atlético Nacional, the next continental match for Chapecoense. Thus, the club believed that he had served his suspension and that he was therefore eligible to play. He was in Wagner Mancini's starting 11. When that starting 11 was handed in to be officialized, the match official, you know, kind of the overseer from Conmebol, informed Chapecoense that, hey, Luis Otavio still has two matches to go on his ban. He's actually not eligible to play in this match. And rather than rescind Luis Otavio from the starting 11, Chapecoense doubled down. Uh, the club president said that he was not informed of the three-match suspension and claimed that the CBF, the Brazilian Federation, was not informed of the suspension. And thus, they were going to play Luis Otavio because they felt that they could win this appeal, that they weren't informed of the suspension, the CBF wasn't informed of the suspension, therefore he should be allowed to play. It's unconnable to inform these parties of the suspension. So even though they had been informed before the match, they kept him in the starting 11. He ended up scoring the winning goal, securing the three points. Uh, Lanus filed a protest at halftime of this match, alleging that Chape had used an ineligible player. That appears to be the case. It was confirmed today uh, in Global Sports, one of the, the big web publications in Brazil. Uh, the CBF informed Global Sports that they had, in fact, been informed of the three-match suspension for Luis Otavio and that they informed the State Federation of Chapecoense, which is Santa Catarina. They informed them on May 10th that Luis Otavio did, in fact, have a three-match ban. Uh, so Chapecoense doubled down on this, and it looks like it's going to burn them. There has not been any official pronouncement on this yet. There's no punishment. But it looks pretty certain like these three points will not stand for Chapecoense and that these will go to Lanus, that will advance Lanus out of this group and put Nacional in a good place to get out of this group as well, Nacional of Uruguay. And it's a shame for Chapecoense uh, because this was a brilliant result. This might have been the most impressive result that anybody got in this set of matches. They went on the road to a tough Argentinian team, scored a pair of goals, and got three points that would have put them right in the thick of this competition. But they it just felt like, regardless of how confident you were, that you can't keep Luis Otavio in the starting 11. You have to take him out. They had the option to do so. They declined to do it. They trusted their ability to win an appeal. It doesn't look like they're going to be able to win that appeal. They're going to lose this three points, and it's going to cost them in the Libertadores. Uh, and it's a shame, but they also kind of only have themselves to blame for this situation. Awesome. Is there any sort of time frame uh, involved in this? Obviously, you're, you're mentioning appeals and so on. How long is this? Is it going to be a protracted affair? Is it going to be? Do you, do you imagine it's going to be sort of pretty quick? Well, let's just you know kind of put perspective on this. In Brazil, we still haven't settled who's won the 1987 domestic championship. I don't think it'll take that long to figure this out. But we're also working on South American timeframes, so who knows? Obviously, it's in the best interest of everybody involved to get this settled before next week so that we know going into the final matches for this group, which will take place next Tuesday, what will happen in this group. I think Conmebol can rule pretty quickly on this. It looks to be cut and dry. Uh, the Federation was informed. Chapecoense were informed before the match started, neglected to do anything. It looks cut and dry. Give the three points to Lanus. Boom, they're through. Nacional are probably through too. You know, we're done. But this is also South America and Conmebol, so you never quite know what's going to happen. 
No, indeed. Uh, well, as I say, we'll, 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 we'll update you on that uh, next week. Uh, you know, Hopefully there'll be a decision. But as you rightly say, it's South America. God, we could be waiting six months for a decision on it. Uh, the tournament could be over. But listen, we'll move on to the next game. And, and another sad one for Adam, this one. Uh, Universidad Catholica uh, losing 3-2 to two at home to Atletico Paranese. Adam, your thoughts on this one? First of all, I'd like to say that I've enjoyed watching Universidad Catolica in this competition, which I can't say for most Chilean sides in, in the past few years of the competition. But, you know, unfortunately, they are out, and probably deservedly so as well. Their defence just hasn't been good enough, really, over the six matches. Um, I, th- I think I think you could make a point that Catolica were a little bit unfortunate to be in such a strong group. But, you know, that's how the group fell for them and, and they couldn't quite cope with it, unfortunately. It was a group of death, really, which was decided right at the death, which we come onto in a moment with the Flamengo match. But, um, yeah, overall for me, Catholica haven't really been resilient enough. Um, they should have closed out draws away to Flamengo and San Lorenzo. And it looked like even in this match, you know, at 1-0 up, they really didn't seem to have that much to worry about. I didn't really see Alessio Baranzi really threatening them that much at all. Catolica had taken a first-half lead uh, through Santiago Silva, and at half-time, I said that Catolica lead, but, you know, they've been far from impressive. They, they hadn't played particularly well. Um, that was a worry, because generally, Chilean sides have to play pretty much out their skin to get anything in matches. And and at that point, with Flamengo winning in the other game as well, suddenly, Cadolica, against the odds, at the beginning of the night, they were heading through. But midway through the second half, which was well, a fairly uneventful you know, second half at the start of it, before this moment, but Eduardo De Silva, former Arsenal and Croatian uh, international striker, came on. And once he came on, the Chilean defence really seemed to panic. Uh, and, and they paid the price, really. Eduardo De Silva headed home with about 25 minutes to go. And then the game really just opened up after that, with both sides needing a win to go through. Catolica went really all out at that stage. They left far too much space at the back. And uh, Douglas Costa, not that one, he caught Gato napping at the back and uh, ran all the way from the halfway line and calmly finished um, under very little pressure. And at that point, you're thinking, oh, can't, yeah, it's looking very unlikely for Catolica to get anything. They need a miracle like Akike got a few weeks ago in this competition. But Ricardo Nor hit back with a brilliant strike from out, outside the box to give them hope. And with the other game at 1-1, it meant that a winner for either side would send that side through. And it was the Brazilians who got it. Paranense uh, got it. Uh, excellent strike from Carlos Alberto from the edge of the box. And that was that, really, for Catolica. They did have a free kick in the last minute, and it wouldn't have made any difference to them, really, but it would have sent Paranese out and um, and Flamengo through. And they, and, it, and they had this free kick just on the edge of the box, just after the final whistle had blown in that incredibly dramatic match between San Lorenzo and, uh, and Flamengo, which I believe you watched off, didn't you? I did, yeah, and this was this was the Libertadores drama as we know as as, as we know so well at its peak form. Uh, 
coming into this set of matches, we knew that that this group was as tight as could be. Group four, all four teams had a chance to go through, uh, and all four teams at various points on Wednesday night were going through. For Flamenco, that was the entire night until they conceded the second goal to San Lorenzo, and that was ultimately what left them out. Um, we'll get into the to that match a little bit here. Flamengo on the road in Buenos Aires against San Lorenzo. They knew that the only way they could go out was was with a loss and a Paranaense win. It looked good for them. Holgine for Flamengo scored early on in this one. Uh, a cracker from outside the box. 14 minutes in, Flamengo were 1-0 up. San Lorenzo didn't threaten all that much for the rest of the half. Uh, and Flamengo, it looked smooth sailing for them. Especially when Catolica took that 1-0 lead that Adam mentioned. It seemed like it was going to take a lot for Flamengo to go out on the night. Then the Catolica match got tight, started to fluctuate back and forth. Flamengo conceded the first goal to San Lorenzo. It was a really weird play. Uh, Mateo Savio, who had come on off the bench for Flamengo in the midfield, gave away possession deep in his own end. Uh, and the San Lorenzo player who won possession just kind of first time turned and just whipped across to the far post. Uh, and Angeletti was there to head from a tough angle to beat Mordalia, who was kind of scampering over from his near post to his far post. That made it 1-1. Uh, then Flamengo kind of battened down the hatches and just tried to hang on, knowing that a draw would be enough for them. San Lorenzo went through points where they were going through with the 1-1 draw, and then they were not going through with the 1-1 draw. And that fluctuated at various points in the next kind of 10 or 15 minutes based on the scoring in that Paranaense Catolica match. Then San Lorenzo had a brilliant chance at about 89 minutes. And Alex Muralia, the goalkeeper for Flamengo, made a sprawling save to deny the opportunity. And it looked like it was going to be the save that saved Flamengo's Libertadores campaign. Kept San Lorenzo out, alleviated some of the pressure. He immediately obviously went down received treatment to kind of stem the tide for Flamengo, but it was not quite enough. San Lorenzo got into the box one final time in the 92nd minute. The ball came down for Belushi, who finished from a tight angle at the far post, beat Muralia. The Flamengo defense kind of looked frozen on this play, and that was the goal that not only sent San Lorenzo through, but shockingly sent Flamengo, one of the favorites in this competition, out. It's a huge, huge blow to Flamengo this year. Their history in the Copa Libertadores in recent years has been has been poor. This is the third straight edition that they've been in, 2012, 2014, 2017. Their last three participations in Libertadores, they've gone out in the group stage. For the club that is the most followed club in Brazil, one of the biggest names in Brazil, one of the best-known clubs in Brazil, that's unacceptable. That type of performance at the continental level, it's not what, what Flamengo are, are expecting. And there's a lot of criticism on manager Zé Ricardo, and understandably so. It was a poor performance from Flamengo. They failed to create opportunities. Their goal from Hajine was really the only time they threatened San Lorenzo. And look, I'm not going to say that Zé Ricardo is without fault here. But in all honesty, you know, the plan almost worked for Flamengo. They're one play away. They really snuffed out opportunities for San Lorenzo. If you look at this match on the whole, the whole 93 minutes, Salamanca really only created three good chances. And, and some of their goals weren't even off of good chances. 
Alex Muralia made one save and San Lorenzo converted their two other chances and that got them the win. Flamengo were too defensive, yes, I'll concede that. Uh, they didn't create anything really in the attacking sense outside of Haljine. But beyond that, it wasn't a terrible game plan. Uh, you know, you'd like to see more offensively, but it almost worked for Flamengo. And I think that's the most disappointing part for them. Uh, they looked shell-shocked, and rightfully so, because for all of this night, they were fine until they weren't. And then there was nothing they could do about it, and they were gone. A um, lot of questions around Flamengo. I think the pressure will be on for them now domestically and the Brassy lay down. They're going to need to probably be in the title hunt for this season to be considered a success, if not lifting the title. They're still in the Copa do Brasil. They should advance in the round of 16 there against Atletico Goianiense. Uh, but there's no doubt that for a squad with the talent that Flamengo has to see Atletico Paranaense go through over them, it's a big blow. San Lorenzo weren't overly impressive on the night, but they were clinical and they went through, maybe not deservedly so, but they did go through and Flamengo are left asking a lot of questions at this point. And Austin, there's quite an interesting piece and you sent it to me there today um, about Flamengo were, were trying to sort of say to San Lorenzo at 1-1, you know, just just play for the draw here. We'll both go through. And, and, and what sort of sticks out is that given the news that came out of Brazil around, you know, the president was caught with his hand in the cookie jar very publicly uh, yesterday. And, and they chose to do that again and tried to sort of a bit of a match fixing thing, which... You know, I, I, I just don't condone that in any way. You know what I mean? And they got what they deserved. I, I have my man crush on San Lorenzo. I thought they thoroughly deserved to go through. Um, I'm delighted they went through. I'm delighted that Flamengo's out. And especially on the back of of, of those reports that came out of uh, Argentina this morning around, you know, try, trying to fix the match and one. I just have no time for that whatsoever. Yeah, and, and it re- really wouldn't have done all that good because there was only a stretch of three or four minutes where San Lorenzo were actually good enough to go through on a draw and then Padanansi took the lead and then San Lorenzo needed the winner. Uh, but yeah, the allegation came from a San Lorenzo player that Heber, who was the captain for Flamengo on the night, offered to play out to a draw. Said, hey, let's finish 1-1. We'll both go through. San Lorenzo obviously couldn't have acquiesced to that because they would have gone out had they done that because of the result in the other match. Uh, it just kind of speaks to the defensive attitude, I think, with which Flamengo approached this game. And again, as I said, they were 60 seconds away from sneaking through. The house of cards kind of fell down on them right at the very end. Uh, and as I said, a lot of questions for Flamengo. They were without their best midfielder, Diego. There are some absences in this squad. But for this team to not get out of the groups in Libertadores... A lot of questions. Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, there couldn't have been many sides in the Libertadores in history, really, who have gone out the way Flamengo have, you know, 11 goals scored, a plus four goal difference. But when you start to look into it a little bit more, you know, they, they were Jekyll and Hyde, really, again, because, you know, they, they were so strong at home, weren't they? they? They looked pretty much unbeatable at home. But away from home, they when, when I start thinking back to their performances away, you know, they simply weren't good enough. No, they, they didn't collect a single point away from the Medicana. At the Medicana, they were perfect. Nine points, three wins, dominant performances, really. You know, the Catolica match, certainly some question marks, but probably the deserved winners on the night. Uh, but away from home, you know, they failed to pick up a point. And there are some groups that nine points with three home wins might be enough to get you out of. But there are also some groups that it's not going to be enough to get you out of. Uh, and for Flamengo, 
this was a group that it was not enough for them to get out of. And we said this was a difficult group coming in. It was a tight group all the way through. You know, minuscule moments is what ended up deciding who came out of this group and who got left in this group. And at the end of the day, that's what left Flamengo 60 seconds short of qualification of the Libertadores. And it's going to be tough for Zay Ricardo and this squad to recover from that because I think there was so much pressure on them to have a good Libertadores performance, and they weren't able to do that. You know, there's suggestion, basically. I think Twitter exploded last night. Um, calling for Zay Ricardo's head, basically. Um, I, I know that the girl who does the editing for us um, here in Brazil, she's a big Flamengo fan. She was going absolutely bickies last night over it. And she put it down to his lack of experience and management, and he should not be anywhere near uh, Flamengo and, and a team of that level. I, I'm just curious as to what you feel, um, where, where he goes from here, and, and whether those comments are actually justified. Yeah, I think Zay Ricardo has done well with Flamengo in his time. He initially started as their caretaker at around May of last year, earned himself the full job based on good performance, had a pretty good campaign last year. Uh, Flamengo finished right up at the top of the table, challenged Palmeiras before eventually falling short. I think Zay Ricardo earned this job. I thought he had his moments where he did well at this job. I don't think he's going to get the sack right now. But I also wouldn't bet on him having a very long stay at Flamengo. I think he's on thin ice now. The second that Flamengo looked like they're wobbling a bit in the title race in Brazil, I think it's probably going to be Zay Ricardo's job. There were always questions about his qualifications. He's a young manager. You know, Flamengo is the biggest club in Brazil. Yeah, I don't think he's going to if fall If not now. the world. Right, Exactly. <laughs> I don't think he's going to fall now, but I also don't think he's going to be employed for much longer. Quickly, we haven't really mentioned Atletico Paranaense all that much in all of this. Uh, they were the side that just kind of kept on trucking. They got the three goals that they needed. They beat Catolica. They eliminated Flamengo. I don't know if we can expect all that much of them. They're going, not going anywhere, Austin. They can't go anywhere. But they somehow got out of this group. They're, they have no business. You look at the talent that they have. Compared to the talent that Flamengo have, the side that Catolica have, it's really, really surprising. Especially given how poor they were at home in this group. Paranansi did everything they could to not advance from this group, seemingly. But 14 strong minutes where they put three goals past Catolica on the final night. And they find themselves, kind of luckily, in the round of 16. They're playing with house money at this point. As you said, it, it, you probably can't expect anything from them, but... The fact that they made it this far is pretty darn impressive for a squad like that. And Adam, you've, you've some points you want to make as well. No, just a quick one about um, uh, Universidad Católica Playa, which we may have seen the last of here in South America for a few years. Uh, centre-back Guillermo Maripan, who's already earned a couple of caps for Chile. He actually played in the China Cup at the start of the year which we briefly covered here on World Football Index, and, it, and he played really well in that competition. For Catolica, for me, he's been a little bit hit and miss, and this game kind of summed up my, my thoughts on him, where he was really imperious for the first hour of the match and summed up how sort of comfortable I thought Catolica looked in defence. And then for the last half an hour, he was part of the reason why they conceded three goals. But yeah, looking at reports here today in Chile, Looks like he's off, maybe to Spain, maybe to Turkey. And he, and he's a player I'm, I'm going to be interested in following his career. Because like I say, 
I haven't really quite my, made my mind up on him yet. Well, maybe we'll, maybe you'll be more decided if he does make that move. But listen, we'll move forward, bring Javi back in again. And Javi berated us for, for, for our love affair with Barcelona. Our love affair kind of ended the night. They went down the tubes 3-0 at home to uh, Estudiantes. I, I, I thought a very good performance tonight from Estudiantes. Interestingly, um, they, they left Veron on the bench. He only came on, I think, about the 55-minute mark. And I think I think it was a better decision to, to leave Veron on, on the bench. But Barcelona looked really a shadow of that wonderful counter-attacking football that we that have captivated us so far, Javi. Definitely, and uh, like the short version of the game is that Barcelona got Barcelona because Estudiantes did a lot of what Barcelona used like likes to do, which is counter-attacking and exploring the wings. Like so, uh, in this scenario. Uh, Dubarbieri, I think that's the right pronunciation of the Argentinian left back, had a, an amazing game. But let's go from the beginning. So Barcelona actually paid the price for gambling in their lineup. And basically they also missed Oyola, Matias Oyola, right? So Barcelona already went through and they actually need to concentrate on the Ecuadorian tournament before they actually miss the first phase, right? So they played a former winger as a right back Tito Valencia, and a very, very not informed left back Roosevelt Oyola. He had the, he have he haven't started a game in months. In addition of the biggest oh no superstar in the game that is Jefferson Mena, that basically is a disaster. So it is fair to say that Barcelona had the chances in, in the first half, but they were unable to score. Mariano Andujar was fantastic in that first half. And it stopped a few a few shots from Barcelona that should have scored, especially that last one in the first half from Aleman. It was pretty tight. In all fairness, Aleman barely shot that because he kind of fell before shooting. It was weird. Then, Estudiantes, like I said, was able to exploit the wings. So in the first goal for Estudiantes, it was a, a behind-the-back pass from Solari to Dubarbieri. Again, in this play... Tito Valencia, Tito Valencia, who played right back and is usually a winger, tried to intercept the ball instead of actually covering his own space. He was never intercepting that ball. He was totally delusional by trying and obviously missed. Then Duvarbieri ran through the left wing and crossed. Now, did I mention superstar Jefferson Mena? Well, he actually watched the ball roll in front of him and does nothing to attempt to intercept. Then Toledo shoots to the post. Well, it, funny enough, like Toledo should have scored. It was a very bad miss from Toledo. And the rebound finds Cavallaro for him to score. The second goal, it was a beauty cross of Dubarbieri to Facundo Sanchez. The thing in this goal is that Facundo Sanchez easily won the position against Rupert Loyola. Like I said, he's clearly not informed. And it's defending was has never been his strongest side, though. But again... Very bad to lose your position like that. And, and Facundo Sanchez scored a great palomita, like we call in Spanish a diving header. Now, the third goal is what everyone needs to be talking about. Because 80 years old, Juan Sebastián Verón dribbled through Jefferson Men. Like, yes, like that happened. Like, he dribbled through Jefferson Men, then ran towards the box and crossed to Facundo Sanchez, who scored with ease. Now, Jefferson Mena was a disaster as usual. I don't know if I mentioned that enough times, but again, 
It is understandable that considering Barcelona is already classified to the next round, they will experiment a little bit with the lineup, which allowed us to continue watching Castillo and Aleman playing together, which was the bright side for Barcelona, because Eric Castillo has been amazing throughout the year. Apparently, he has a very good partnership with Aleman, and the more they play together, the better. Now, Barcelona really needs to solve its defensive issues. And the, the interesting thing with Barcelona is that they already have the tools to do that. Now, when Darío Aymar plays next to Javier Arriaga, that's a solid partnership, okay? Last year, Gabriel Márquez, which is the starting defensive midfielder next to Oyola usually, he plays center-back for, for half of the season, and he did great, right? And at this point, if Barcelona actually has serious intentions in Copa Libertadores, he might be, they might be starting to think about moving Marquez to centre-back when they cannot play Aymar and Arriaga. Because playing Mena is extremely dangerous. Like, game after game after game after game, he keeps proving that he's not up to the challenge. Like, having Verón dribble through you like that happened today, that's unacceptable. Like, like it wasn't like a very skilled, amazingly done, right? He, he just, like, barely flicked the ball. It was... Embarrassing, in my opinion. Now, like I said, the funny thing in this game is that Barcelona got Barcelona because Estudiantes did great on the counter, used the wings very efficiently, and took and took advantage of the few chances they got. So, uh, I hopefully the love affair with Barcelona doesn't end for the World Football Index, um, but definitely it's taking a hit. Oh, indeed it has. And Simon, yourself, you know, I alluded there and Javi mentioned as well, you know, Veron got the assist there. I felt he was just actually more effective coming on at that stage of the game as opposed to starting. But Estudantes were, were, were brilliant tonight. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Veron still has, you know, he's still the most technically talented player on the pitch, you know, kind of, of course, even though he's in his 40s now. And again, I think against the Ecuadorian team, obviously we've mentioned a few times, they're very often very physical, very tough tackling, athletic, quick on the break, and that's really not playing to the strengths of Veron. So I think have you know a couple of goals up, bring him on at the ends, take some free kicks, and obviously, you know, he's involved in set up the final goal as well. So yeah, I think I think you're right. I think they need to use him at the right moments. They're now eliminated from the tournament, but uh you know, yeah, it's you know he's um he can definitely influence the game when he comes on. He's he's great passer, great vision, can be kind of an on the field leader as well. So yeah, he's definitely a player who can be useful at moments, and uh, he definitely contributed to closing out the win for Estudiantes in this game. Dave, I think it's a time that we give ourselves a big pat on the back because isn't this exactly what we suggested? On Absolutely, the, uh, one of the. <laughs> We, we, we described we him as an empty that. shirt. <laughs> I think at one stage it was a waste of a shirt. And, <laughs> and we, you know, ton, tonight... I, for a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, tonight, Adam, I actually thought that he was actually quite effective when it when he came in. And I, 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 I sort of said to myself, this is where he should... You know, this is the way he should be used because there is value in that. Whereas what we've seen so far, I, th- I just honestly believed it was a waste of a shirt. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, well, that you know, that just seemed the obvious way to go for me. Copa Libertadores match for the first hour is, you know, blood and thunder a lot of the time. For a 40-plus-year-old man to be out there, it's going to be hard going. But as Simon says, you know, he, he's still one of the most technically gifted players out on that pitch. So if he comes on with a few other tired legs around him, he could still make a difference. And I think that's what we saw tonight. Although... Uh, 
you know, I, th- I think you guys may be a little bit harsh on, on Barcelona in terms of sort of the overall outlook here because, you know, I think that I kind of expected this. I expected them to take their foot off their gas. Yeah, you know, it was just, I think, I think that's a natural reaction, you know, that they'd qualified so easily. Yeah, I, I think it was just one of those nights where maybe they, they lacked a little bit of motivation more than anything else. I, I think they're still going to be a dangerous side in this competition. Definitely. I don't disagree with you. And actually, we had the chance to to see some players that we don't see very often. So that wasn't very bad. And again, seeing the Castillo-Aleman partnership actually is showing Almada the tools he has, right? And uh, Yeah, like, and the actual real starting 11 for Barcelona is definitely going to do interesting things throughout the Copa. So, uh, yeah, um, I agree with you on that. Yeah, and, and as you rightly say, Adam, you know the, the finer arts that uh, that Veron brings are are better after the blood and thunder sort of dies a little bit. Okay, we'll move on to the next game, which saw Melgar go down two to three at home to River Plate. Uh, quite an interesting uh, game. This I saw the goals in it, Javi, and it's sort of brief highlights of it. But Melgar gave quite a good account of themselves, and you know River Plate only snatched the, the win at the end. Albeit, I think River were playing a, a weakened squad to what would probably be their their, their first choice. But you know, th- there's some nice goals in there, and and they they are durable even with um, that sort of reduced capacity. It's very interesting that River played its B team, and that B team has so many interesting players. Like Mayada today had an amazing game, right? So um, the thing with Melgar is that they didn't really play the first 20 minutes, and that was that ended up costing them a lot, right? Because the first goal showed showed actually the aerial prowess and advantage that River had, in which La Rondos like had a corner that Alario just pushed really close to the net. It was a very nice goal, like it was Alario showing his poacher skills, right? And then the second goal was pretty nice, like uh, a through ball to Andrade that shot. And the keeper Alvarez saved for Mayada to score on the rebound, right? Which showed lack of organization in the back for Melgar because the keeper cannot really do anything but push the ball towards the other side. And there needs to be some defense there to clear the ball. Then Melgar found the chance to score through a long cross that Fernandez was able to control and strongly shoot. Now, again, I'm from Ecuador and I really like to see some Ecuadorians play important games. So it was nice to see Arturo Mina play. And he, I think that he had a very good game. Now, but in that first Melgar goal, I don't understand how a centre-back, in this case Arturo Mina, can face a shot and then just turn around and jump, like flinching, right? When you're a centre-back, you, and it might be unfair to compare him, but you need to be like Carles Puyol, like Diego Godin. Like, you need to look the ball and try to intercept it, not just jump and not look at the ball. That's embarrassing for a centre-back. That should never happen. And again, later in the game, Mayala failed a clearance. It was a very weird play because the other center, uh, the, the, the other defender from River actually like obstructed Mayala to clear, so he decided not to clear, and then fell. And then that's that's when Emmanuel Herrera just scores, like I just shoots and score. It was so Melgar actually tied the game, and it was very surprising and interesting for the game because it turned out to be an unexpected tie. Uh, tight and interesting game. But then River played a brilliant counterattack that was finished by Ignacio Fernandez. So River showed that even with its backup lineup, it's able to get the result from inferior teams. And it's making me feel very good about my my initial uh, Libertadores preview 
forecast in which I said that River was my contender for the Libertadores, I'm starting to feel very confident. <laughs> no, but with that, with that kind of depth that they have, have a, you know, they're very, very hard not to see as anything other than a big contender for this tournament. And definitely. And they will, hopefully, this depth will help them survive uh, throughout the year, because I doubt that they will keep all their players throughout the year, right? So hopefully this depth and this amount of experiments in which they bring players that doesn't usually play and are able to perform at a high level, help them to guide them through the throughout the year. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, listen, we'll move on to, 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 to a rather sad affair, to be honest with you. I'll, I'll come to Simon actually on it. Um, we, we saw the end of Atletico Nacional tonight. They went down 1-0 away to Botafogo. Uh, Botafogo are like the bad smell that won't go away. We just can't seem to get rid of them in this tournament. As I say, I, I was hoping that, that you know, Nacional could have won. There's been an upturn in form in the recent games, and I thought it maybe turned a corner. But tonight, apart from it, there was a period, I think, towards the, the end of the second half where they looked really good. They didn't capitalise on. They, they just weren't themselves. No, absolutely. I think there are some fundamental issues with Atletico Nacional at the moment. Um, which when they make the step up from the from the league games, that they're struggling a little bit. I think the way they play puts a lot of pressure um, on on certain players. So with Atletico Nacional, they, the wingers push right wide out to the touchline, and that can be a good thing in terms of spreading the play, creating space. But what it means is that some of the players, especially with Alexis Enriquez playing very very deep he, this week alongside uh, Cuesta, who's a very interesting young 18 year old defender who looks looks very good. But with Enriquez playing so deep, with the wingers pushing up very high and very wide, it means that everyone in the middle has a lot of ground to cover. And in the middle, they have Magnelli Torres, who's an excellent player, can really really pick out the passes. But it means that he has to cover a lot of ground, which maybe isn't necessarily playing into his skill set as a predominantly creative technical player um so it means that he's quite isolated and it means the two defensive midfielders have a lot of ground to cover defensively but also when they receive the ball they don't necessarily have options close by so by by spreading the play they're creating space but i don't think that they have the physical advantage and the technical excellency to exploit that space in the same way as they did last year last year they had miguel borja up front who's a real good focal point uh, for the attack, they had the explosive pace of Orlando Berrio on the right wing. They had Alejandro Guerra, who can break from midfield to attack very quickly, play a one-two, and, and then run straight at the defense. The Atlético Nacional that we have this year is a solid team. The defense is almost the same. Um, they've got some decent holding midfield players. Manuel Torres is one of the best passers in world football when he's on his game, but they're they're solid and they're workmanlike and they missed a few of those explosive players. And by playing such a, a, a spread out formation, it really isolates certain players and it really shows their limitations. Um, so I think Nacional would have done well to have kind of reevaluated things. Obviously, when you win the Copa Libertadores and you get to the final of the Copa Sudamericana, you win the league, there's a tendency to maintain and at the beginning of the tournament i was very positive about the acquisitions in terms of replacing like for like but then right towards the end of the transfer window the last couple of players berrio went out the door borja finally completed his transfer uh, and i think it it didn't give national the time to to replace those players and they relied on certain players who really aren't good enough one more scared has been playing and he's 
a big, big step down on some of the other options. Tonight they played Rodin Quinones, who played well, had a good game on the right wing. But again, he's a 21-year-old just trying to establish himself. It was a big, big competition, a big game for him to come and play. You know, I think Nacional overestimated the quality that they had. Obviously, they performed very well with their second team in the league last year when the first team was in the Libertadores and when they played, you know, almost 50 players over the, over the last year. So they had a lot of confidence in these, these other players, these, you know, squad players. And I think they've relied a little bit too much on some of them when they were in a position in terms of the money, in terms of the prestige of the club, to kind of pick out one or two of extra players who, you know, there was talk of uh, Roger Martinez, who would have been an excellent signing, uh, uh, Colombian international forward. He would have made a big difference. Um, Jimmy Chara may be coming in for Nacional uh, from Mexican football. Again, he would have been a very good option on the wing. So I think Nacional have relied a little bit too much on their stability uh, defensively uh, and you know the maintaining what they have. But I think what was needed is a little bit of an injection of, uh, of a few extra explosive, creative, unpredictable players to kind of build upon that. And as I mentioned, the formation just really puts a lot of pressure on those holding midfield players. And I think that's where they got exposed with a well-organized Botafogo team. Botafogo showed some good commitment. Uh, Camilo is a nice player, a uh, very, very talented player in the number 10 position. Um, and yeah, I just think on the night, Botafogo were, were committed, were organized, and, and Nacional weren't in a position to, to kind of make that, push home that advantage towards the end of the game. You know, it never felt to me, despite Nacional having good positions and having a good, few good opportunities, it always felt to me that if Nacional were going to score, it was going to be you know, a moment of individual brilliance or a long-range effort or something out of the ordinary because they become quite predictable in these big games, which is a shame because I say in the league, they keep grinding out these good results. They, they're very comfortable. So it's just a shame that they were missing the extra spark, which is needed in the, you know, the continental competition. And Austin, yourself, um, you know, as I say, Botafogo, we, we, we've sort of written them off so many times in this tournament and they've defied us. I, I was particularly impressed for, for, with the assist on, on, the, on the goal for Botafogo. Thought it was absolutely sublime, perfectly weighted ball. And, you know, at the end, we saw Camilo, who, who Simon mentioned there, and, and he is the standout player for me. He is. He, I do enjoy watching the player. So I'm stretchered off. Um, hopefully it's not too serious, but... Botafogo go through, Austin? They do, and I think Simon summed it up pretty well. I thought it was a very committed performance from Botafogo. You know, they were in a pretty good position in this match where regardless of what happened tonight, Botafogo were going to have a chance to get out of this group in their final game. And they qualified with a match to spare, and that in and of itself is probably pretty impressive for them. Uh, but regardless of what happened, they were going to have a chance. It was going to be away in Argentina against Estudiantes, so it was going to be difficult. But they had some wiggle room here. Jair Ventura, one of the up-and-coming young managers in Brazil, the game plan for this match was we're going to let Nacional possess the ball, and we're going to let them possess it in positions that aren't all that dangerous to us. And that's really how this match played out. Nacional had the bulk of the possession, but they failed to create a ton of opportunities. As Simon said, it felt like if a goal was going to come for them, it was going to be individual brilliance rather than them actually breaking down Botafogo, you know, kind of consistently. Uh, and then Fulgaon decided to play on the counter, created a couple of good opportunities at points. They hit the post early on in this match. And then, as you said, the goal was, was a brilliant, brilliant feed from Rodrigo Lindoso. 
Fallon Pimpon, who has been kind of the primary goal scorer for both Vogel in this competition, he finished and that put both Vogel 1-0 up and that was enough for them to see this one out. Nacional kind of looked out of ideas at points, as Simon said. But for both the Fogo, this is going to be their game plan going forward. Carly and I thought Igor Rabello, the 22-year-old center back, played really well in defense today. I think that might be the center defense pairing that both Fogo will want to go with going forward in this competition. They're going to defend, keep things tight, hold, hold out at the back. They've got a strong goalkeeper in Gachito Fernandez. They like their center back pairings. They've got good, strong play in the midfield defensively. And then let their number 10, Camilo, try to create opportunities on the counter, thread some long balls. Hager is a good player to, to run on some of those balls. Pimpound has scored some big goals cutting in from the wing. You know, Bruno Silva is maybe a more defensive winger on that right wing, but can also provide a little bit of opportunity going forward. They don't need to be brilliant to keep advancing in this competition. That they've shown us so far. This is a team that I think could see making a run to the quarterfinals or the semifinals. Um, I did predict that they would go out of this competition. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt because I've pegged them wrong from pretty much the start. <laughs> They're kind of like some Paolo. I, I think we all yeah, have done that. You know, now, now, that I start, now that I start believing in them, they'll go and they'll lose, you know, 4-0 in their, in their round of 16 match. But whatever. I'm all in now on both of the focus. This team's going a long way, I believe. But it was, yeah, it was composed. It was organized and it was what they needed it wasn't impressive but it you know it doesn't have to be to get through uh as far as camillo is concerned i think this was more of a it's the 88 it's the you know 87th minute we're in a one nil game that if we win we go through i'll take my time getting off the pitch thank you very much i'll get stretchered off for the sub i think it was more of that than anything obviously you know, their last match in this group against the Estudiantes will only matter as far as who finishes first or second. You know, both the Fogo are through no matter what. So they don't have to risk him in that if there actually is an issue. And then beyond that, there's a long break before they come back. Uh, also to note on them, they'll probably have Walter Montillo back by that point. He was a player that was brought in uh, in January. Hasn't done all that much. He's struggled with a lot of injuries since arriving at both Fogo. But he's a talented player in the midfield, could help out. With Camilo, we haven't seen them play together all that much, and I'm actually really intrigued to see that. But just something to keep in the back of your mind that going forward, Montillo will be a player that both Fogo, you know, can count on in this competition. Also, one more thing on this match for me: Franco Armani, brilliant again. Argentina needed to call him up, do it before I get more upset. Here, here. I, I just don't understand. But he was—I thought he was brilliant. Kept Nacional in this at the end and gave him a chance. Yeah, just want to say, really, you know, I, I'm fine. From being their biggest fan, <laughs> as anybody no, listens to this no. <laughs> regularly, but no massive credit to Botafogo. Really, I, I thought they did pretty well tonight. But they weathered a, a Letico National storm at the end of that first half, and and just a big credit to them generally. Really, they've beaten quite a lot of decent sides now in this competition: Colo Colo, Olimpia, Atletico Nacional, home and away, Estudiantes at home. So yeah, I, I think I think really when all said and done, that they probably do deserve to actually go through in this group. And I think you can't just put it down to luck, really, which I may have done a little bit too much before tonight. Um, a massive praise for their fans as well, who have really made these home matches quite a spectacle. Actually, um, I've really enjoyed watching Botafogo play at home because the stadium's always packed out. It seems. 
Um, and, that, and that's great to see and great for this competition as well. Especially, you know, with Flamengo going out, you know, no more Maracanã in this competition, I don't think now. So that's a shame. But this stadium and, and crowd has been pretty decent right from the off in this competition. Yeah, and I would have to echo you on that one, actually, Adam, because, you know, Flamengo in the Maracanã, well, it was something special this year. And, you know, obviously they're on the road form was pathetic. But for the Brazilian sides, as you rightly say, there's Botafogo there and... Um, and Flamengo, who, whose fans have really been standout in the qualifying stages, totally and utterly. Okay, so well, I suppose we shall close it at that at 20 to 2 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> we'll call it a night. Uh, before we go, I'll run around the table uh, one last time. Any plugs or mentions? Uh, I'll start with Austin, as always. Austin, far away, working with find you. What are you doing? Anything you want to plug? I'm at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. Uh, last week, my 2017 Brazil Down preview was released on the World Football Index website. Put a lot of work into it this year um, with full knowledge that the predictions themselves will be wrong. Uh, but there's a good solid paragraph on all 20 teams. Learn who they're going to count on, who's going to be key, so that even when I get the actual numbers wrong, you know, you, you can still learn more. Uh, the Brazil Down kicked off this last weekend, and actually in pretty entertaining style, I must say. Uh, we set a, a recent record for goals in the first round. All the home teams won, but we had some pretty exciting matches. Or I guess none of the home teams lost, I should say, because there were draws. But Flamengo Gallo was entertaining. Palmeiras started off hot. Uh, so it should be another good weekend for that this weekend. I'll have coverage of all that. And then group stage of Libertadores wraps up next week. Palmeiras look to advance out of this competition. Gremio are probably already through from this competition, but they'll secure that up with a home win against Samora, you would think. So things coming down to the wire. Still some drama left, uh, as there always is in Libertadores. It never seems to disappoint. No, indeed not. And I congratulate you on that article because I hadn't read it the last pod we'd done, and I, and I sat down and read it. Absolutely great stuff. As you say, you'll probably, you'll probably end up wagging your people. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I always do. This will be the third straight year. I'm not going to get anywhere close to having anything right. But, but absolutely kudos and fair play to you for, for writing it up. It's a great read. I would highly recommend it. And yourself, Adam, what, what are we doing at the minute? Where can we find you? Well, first off, I just want to say, you know, we've just done a podcast about the Copa Libertadores mentioning Rory Delap and Wesley Houlihan. So, you know, yeah, why, would you listen... thing go. <laughs> why, why would you why would you listen to anything else? And we were all so close to going for a whole pod without Austin mentioning mentioning uh, Palmeiras. And then he just did it just then. Uh, and, and ruined it all. Snuck it in there, um, right under your noses. Yeah. Ah, there. It was uh, my heart sank. But yeah, I also feel a little bit wrong if if I went without mentioning the superb super classico between River and Boca on Sunday. You know, I helped run these South American podcasts, and unfortunately, we couldn't quite get a pod together to to cover that game. Um, but if you haven't seen it yet, you know, go on YouTube and check it out. Some cracking goals, some cracking action. Man, those river forward players are so exciting to watch. Alario and Jerusi, especially. You know, just 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 check it out. And there was also a lot of drama in the Chilean League last weekend. The league wraps up this weekend. So look out for my tweets on that on Saturday afternoon, my time. Saturday evening in, in the UK. Lots to look forward to this weekend and the possibility of Universidad de Chile. We went top for the first time on the last match day here in Chile. Uh, they just need a win over San Luis to claim their 18th Chilean title. 
uh, under the noses of their fierce rivals, Colo Colo. And you can was, follow me. Already, get my. You've already done that. <laughs> no, he never got. No. He never got the Twitter. We, 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 we asked own... him for a plug, and he gave us a mini South American yeah. football show. But he, but he never put his Twitter <laughs> account in there. He left everything but the the actual handle. <laughs> I've waited. I've Where waited a South American football show. Didn't get to do it, so I tried to. Condense. So you did a mini one. <laughs> didn't get to the U twenty World Cup though. Didn't didn't get everything no. on the topic. <laughs> I, I need Tom Robinson for that. Maybe, maybe I'll do something over the weekend with him on that. But yeah, yeah. So you can you can find me at Canadian Scores uh, on Twitter, uh, or just search for my name, Adam Brandon. Moving on, and Javi, where can we find you? Anything you want to plug? So you can find me on Twitter at, at ZAVXAV. Nothing at this point to plug, but this has been really great. Super job. And yourself, Simon, finally, um, what have you been up to this week? I, I know you were you were talking about wingbacks on uh, on Colombian radio, and you've you learned a new word in, in, in Spanish this, <laughs> this very day. But where can we find you? What are you up to? Yeah, so at Simon Edwards SAF. Yeah, I did a Bogota radio program about Chelsea randomly, so had to work out how to say wingbacks to to describe what's going on in Chelsea. But generally, yeah, mostly Colombian football. This weekend is the end of the is the defining the the play, teams for the playoffs in Colombia. So I'll do a few things on that, and I'm also planning a an interview with uh, Renata Silva, Aranjo Silva, and uh, Daniela Montoya, who are two of the players playing in the Colombian Women's League. Uh, they get into the playoffs coming up. Uh, Daniela Montoya is, a, is one of the best players in Colombia. She used to play in, in Europe. So looking forward to getting their, their perspective on the league. And for me, it's been very, very impressive the way that the Colombian public and the Colombian football fans have really embraced this Women's League. Um, often men can be, men in particular, can be quite skeptical about women's football, but you know, fans of Santa Fe have really taken to Santa Fe women's team as if it was the men's team. And yeah, it's, it's been really great to see. So it'd be interesting to see the perspective of a couple of players who played in the first women's league here in Colombia. And it seems from my perspective to a big success. So we'll see how it is from, uh, from a couple of players who've been involved in the, in the league. That's fantastic. And, and from my own point of view, I was meant to go to ABC's opening game of the season uh, on Saturday there, and my car broke down the fucking motorway. So that was the end of that. So I'm going to the next one, uh, and I've, I've sort of booked in with a few of the fan groups there to have a few words with them about uh, their hopes for the season and so on. I actually ended up dodging a bull that was the most boring. There wasn't even a highlight from it. Uh, well, a player got stretchered off. That was the highlight of, of the game. It was nil-nil. Um, so I didn't miss anything. Hopefully next week we'll, we'll have something more to talk about. As I say, from WFI perspective, we're, we're very, very light on pods here at the moment. As I say, uh, the Bundesliga guys were away in Germany and their pods were very early this week. Um, as a result of that, there's been sort of very, very little happening this week. And I expect that next week will be us sort of winding down then of the end of the European seasons. But we will continue with the South American show, as always. It will never stop. Um, and just one final thanks to the guys, as always. Very early in the morning, late at night, whatever way you want to look at it. And their time is always appreciated. And yourself, a listener, always appreciated that you take the time to listen to us. And we'll be back again next week to talk you through the final rounds of these groups and who's going through and so on. And until then, just thank you again. It's good night. <laughs>